Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media soundbites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Every spring, thousands of fish move between saltwater and freshwater habitats. Some, like Atlantic salmon, migrate from the sea into Maine's rivers and streams in order to spawn. Others, like sea-run brook trout, switch between salt and freshwater in search of perfect temperatures and food sources. As a group, these diadromous fish, as they're called, are uniquely adapted to moving throughout their life stages between these two environments. What's especially cool for us in the WERU listening area is that Maine, down east Maine in particular, is home to some of the very best diadromous fish habitat along the entire eastern seaboard. Today's show is about Atlantic salmon and sea-run brook trout, two fish species that embody the wilds of down east Maine. I'm excited to have folks on today's show who can tell us all about salters, as sea-run brook trout are referred to locally, and salmon. Today's show is part fisheries biology, part conservation history, and part fishing stories. Because when you get people together who love to fish, you're bound to hear some great fishing stories. So we'll talk with Rob Packey, president of the Downey's chapter of Trout Unlimited, Jeff Reardon, who is Trout Unlimited's Maine Brook Trout Project Director, Dwayne Shaw, Executive Director of Down East Salmon Federation, and Joe Robbins, a founding board member of Down East Salmon Federation, who started fishing for salmon in 1959. I also wanted to thank Tammy Packey, Secretary of the Down East Chapter of Trout Unlimited, for all the help getting today's show organized. Thanks, Tammy. Finally, please note that today's show was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls today. We started today's Coastal Conversations about salters and salmon by asking everyone to introduce themselves. So here we go. Well, my name is Rob Packey, and I'm a resident of Bar Harbor. I'm the president of Downey's Trout Unlimited, and I've been an avid fly fisherman in the area and an avid naturalist for my whole life. I spent most of my life living on Mount Stewart Island. And so that's why I was interested in, in helping out with this show because of my experience with sea run trout and my interest in the regional national history. Great, thanks so much, Rob. Um, Jeff, let's go to you next since I know you also have a, a Trout Unlimited connection. Sure, my name's Jeff Reardon. Um, I live down in Manchester near Augusta. Um, I am the uh, Maine Brook Trout Project Director for TU. I'm an employee of the national organization, which all of our Maine chapters and the Maine Council belong to. I've been working for TU for about 20 years and uh, grew up in Maine and have been back since 1994. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. And Joe, let's go with you next. 
Hi, I'm Joe Robbins from Winthrop, Maine. Uh, I have a real estate business in East Machias, and that's where I grew up. Uh, I've been a salmon fisherman since 1959, uh, fishing all the down east rivers, and in Maine now it's uh, not allowed, you're not allowed to fish for Atlantic salmon, so I fish in other countries. Great. I look forward to hearing your stories, Joe. Um, and Dwayne, how about you, if you could introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi. Thank you, Natalie. Um, my name is Dwayne Shaw, and I'm the executive director of the Downey Salmon Federation, and a group that's been around since 1982. And in fact, Joe was one of the founding board members back then. And we're based down in um, Washington County, but the region that we work in is Hancock and Washington County. Um, essentially, and I'm a biologist by training and UMM graduate from back in the 80s and got involved with little salmon fishing down east back in those days. Great. Thank you, Duane. And welcome to all four of you to Coastal Conversations today. Um, and so we're going to focus today on sea run brook trout, brook trout in general, Atlantic salmon, and um, what it is about uh, those species that make our region, uh, sort of the mid coast to down east, so critical for them, and um, what we can learn from you guys about fishing and getting out there and um, how to how to take advantage of the incredible wildlife that we have in our region. Maybe we can start with um, Jeff. Can you give us tell us a little bit about brook trout? What's exciting about brook trout? Why are folks so um, focused on this little tiny fish? Well, everybody, everything's exciting about brook trout. Of course, everybody's excited about brook trout. Um, particularly here in Maine, um, we've still got, and we're probably the last state where brook trout are native in the U.S. Um, that still has relatively intact populations of brook trout. Um, we've got uh, more than 90% of the brook trout populations in lakes in Maine, in, in lakes and ponds in all of the states that run from Maine to Georgia and west as far as Ohio. Um, and we've probably got about half the intact stream populations of brook trout. Um, I think we're going to talk a fair amount today about sea run brook trout, and we know quite a bit less about our sea run brook trout populations. They've been less studied, uh, both by, by the state and also by federal biologists than, than inland brook trout have been. But it's the same species. Uh, it just happens to be living in streams that have access to tidal waters or, or in some cases, salt waters. In other cases, uh, fresh tidal waters. Um, and some portion of the fish in those coastal streams go downstream to tidewater. And at least in a few cases, when they do that, uh, it gives them somewhat of an advantage by finding more food and they grow a bit bigger uh, before coming back up into fresh water to spawn. Uh, it's very different from what uh, Atlantic salmon or alewives do. Uh, these are not fish that are spending several years in fresh water, then going to the ocean for a couple of years and coming back. Uh, it's much more of a migration back and forth between fresh water and the estuary, at least as far as we understand it. And although we don't know how many populations Maine has, um, at minimum, we know we have populations that stretch from near the Canadian border, where, uh, where Dwayne and Joe have fished them for a long time, um, and all the way down into York County, where there's at least one pretty well-documented stream. And we suspect Maine's got more of those populations than the other eastern states do, in part because we've got a whole lot more coastline. 
Um, and we know that they never were present anywhere south of either Long Island or New Jersey, depending on what reference you believe. So um, we've got them and we want to keep them, I think, is, is, is the, the primary interest. And can you, um, can you help me understand why would, would a brook trout, who some percentage of the population, if I understand correctly, more brook trout spend most of their life in the streams and the brooks and the ponds, and some go out to sea to get the right temperatures that they need and food and everything, and what would compel them to do that? It appears to be just a behavioral adaptation, and I will say that brook trout anywhere they live um, are, are tend to be migratory. Okay. Uh, we've got, uh, done a lot of studies on inland brook trout in both lakes and ponds and big rivers in Maine, and every place we've studied those populations, if they're able to move, they do. Uh, and they move about as far as they're able to. So if you take a species that, you know, that's what they do, they move around looking for food and spawning locations and cold water, um, and you put them in a small stream that, that discharges into salt water, some of, gonna, some of them are gonna find their way into salt water. Um, I've actually heard uh, uh, one of the theories that some people had is that the fish that actually get into salt water are the fish that, you know, as young fish are growing up, there's a lot of competition all the juvenile trout don't survive. One of the theories is that the fish that get out competed get pushed out of the best freshwater habitat, and that has them ending up downstream in tidewater. Uh, and then once they get there, there's a bunch of food available, and the ones that survive uh, come back bigger and maybe have an advantage when they come back to spawn by either having more, you know, being bigger, more competitive, carrying more eggs if they're females. But that's mostly conjecture. I, we really think it's just these, these fish are... Um, they're programmed to move. They need to move to find the things to get that they need to live. And that's really cold water, food, and spawning sites. And uh, if they have access to the salt, it looks like they use it when they, when they have the ability to do so. There is definitely not, from any of the evidence I've seen, uh, unlike landlocked salmon versus sea-run salmon, there's not a genetic difference between the fish that are in freshwater their whole lives and the fish that are in tidewater. Um, these are fish in the same streams. They're sharing the stream. Some fraction of the population goes to salt water and some population stays home and fresh. That's so interesting. And I'm glad you brought up the salmon. We'll, we'll talk about salmon again in a, in a couple minutes, but that's an interesting comparison, how they're different. Um, <clears throat> but I want to turn to Rob first, um, because Rob, I know that you have been uh, fishing around Mount Desert Island for a long time, where the streams and the brooks are not very long between the headwaters to the sea. Um, so are the, tell us a little bit about the, the brook trout that you're fishing for. Are they what you call salters who spend a part of their life cycle out at sea or tell us a little bit about that? Sure, well, there are salters on MDI in some of the streams. And um, I started fishing for salters back in 1978 or 79 and kind of the old fashioned way of finding out about them. An older friend of my father's knew I was trying to learn how to fly fish and asked if I had ever fished for them and I'd never heard of them before. So he took me to a couple of spots. After that, I started fishing as many streams as I could to look for them. And um, so the, uh, there are some streams that I haven't found any in and there are some streams that have had good populations of them. Uh, some of the streams are actually a bit longer. Bass Arbor Marsh is a pretty long stream going through the marsh which has had some really nice fishing over the decades. Um, and then also I found them in one of the ponds on the island that goes right out to the ocean. The outlet goes right across the beach. 
So they're in some different habitats on MDI, as well as in some of the smaller streams. When do you, are you already out there fishing and how are you fishing for them? Well, they're kind of elusive as far as the timing goes. And as many of the decades as I fish for them, um, my experience on MDI has been about, oh, roughly say May 20th through about June 10th. And it's a case of I start fishing for them, um, looking for them and not catching anything. And then all of a sudden, maybe the second or third time, I start catching uh, sea run trout and they disappear just as quickly. I know in other streams in other parts of the state, at least south of here, people are starting already, I believe, to fish for them now. But my experience on this area and most of my fishing for them has been on MDI that it's a, another week or so before I'll really start trying to find them. And, and what's your favorite uh, way to fish for them? Um, well, I usually fly fish. Um, when I started fishing for them, I was learning how to fly fish and I did a lot of spin fishing. And for, um, for those people that, that spin fish and um, there are some small, shiny spinners work well, things like Al's goldfish or um, super dupers. Those are my two spinners I used to use a lot. But now I strictly fly fish. And um, for fishing tackle, I use just a general purpose fly rod. Um, I use a nine foot five weight rod. And for, for um, leaders, I use a three X or four X nine foot leader. Um, these fish, when they're in the salt water, are feeding mostly on small fish and crustaceans like small shrimps and um, uh, gammarids, which are scuds. So those are the type of flies that I use to imitate those. Um, a number of years ago, uh, when I was younger, I used to keep fish occasionally, and I'd always do a stomach analysis. And I caught a couple of fish and kept them and found they were filled with sticklebacks, um, specifically nine-spine sticklebacks that are a small fish about two or two and a half inches long. So I started fishing a fly, and the fly fishermen will know this fly, it's um, a black-nosed dace in a size 10 or 12, and that's a very effective fly I have found uh, for fishing for sea run trout. So you would literally just slice open their belly and see what was inside to help you figure out what fly to use? Yes. Anytime that I keep trout, um, I, I don't keep many trout nowadays, but anytime I do keep trout, I do that. And um, just as a side note, my dad was a marine biologist and a master main guide, and he studied invertebrates, marine invertebrates. So he kind of encouraged me to do that whenever I did that. I also, also did that when I was duck hunting and grouse hunting. I always do a stomach analysis to see what uh, these birds are feeding on or fish are feeding on. A question about the, the legality of fishing, uh, just so our listeners are clear, what do you need for permits to, to target brook trout, whether they're sea run or regular brook trout? Well, you need a main fishing license. I'm not sure that technically if you're fishing uh, at the entrance to the ocean, if you actually knew that, Jeff, do you know that? But I, I believe you, you really need to have a main fishing license. That's the only, there's no separate permit or stamp for them. No, there's, there's not a separate permit for fishing in tidal waters, but when you apply for your license, you will get asked the question, do you intend to fish in tidal waters? And you should check the yes box, because technically, if you haven't checked that box on your license, um, that's, that's how Maine complies with a federal requirement mm -hmm. for, uh, for, for licensing in salt water. Uh, I've never heard of that being enforced, uh, and I've been checked by both Marine Patrol and IFNW wardens. Um, at or near the head of tide, 
but I think technically that's what we need to do to comply. Uh, and pretty much everybody does because most of us in Maine who fish uh, are going to do something in the salt water at some point during the year. Great. Thanks for that. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's switch gears and hear a little bit about salmon here in Maine. And, and Dwayne, let's start with you. Um, if you could give us an overview about Atlantic salmon. Well, at one time, Atlantic salmon were numerous up and down the New England coast and resided in the rivers and the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. And over time, they've been depleted for a variety of reasons, um, dams being a big one, dams without fish passage. And um, they are migratory, so this is different than the landlocked salmon. So landlocked meaning that they stay in the interior waters and the Atlantic sea runs go out to sea. Most of them go all the way to Greenland to mature, come back and spawn in their natal rivers, river of origin. So they have a, an amazing life cycle and an amazing connection to our history and culture. Um, both uh, the Native Americans who are here and, and all of the other folks who have fished for them over the years. So um, they've been a very, very controversial fish because they, they require high water quality. They require access. They can't, of course, be overfished by anyone in their path, whether you're in Greenland or in, you know, Mattawamkeag. We've got to care for the fish at all points in their life cycle. So they are obligatory. So like the brook trout we just talked about, sea run brook trout, are not necessarily obligated, obligated to go to the sea through their natural history of their life cycle. So Atlantic salmon are hardwired to go to the sea to fulfill their life cycle. and that, of course, is a complex arrangement where you, they're in full salinity and they're traveling thousands of miles to Greenland and back. So they're just an amazing species and they're listed as, unfortunately, endangered now by the federal government and the only state that has a population, remnant population, is Maine. And there are just uh, a handful of watersheds in Maine that have remnant strains. They're managed uh, based upon their river of origin, so river-specific management. So Machias River fish are managed separately from the East Machias fish, and the broodstock are held separately in the, in the live gene bank program that exists at the uh, Craigbrook National Fish Hatchery. And then beyond that, our organization operates um, a couple of innovative experimental hatcheries, and we've been having some really good success, which I can talk about later. So Down East Maine has, um, is part of what's called the Shrew Salmon Habitat Recovery Unit. There are three units in Maine. Uh, the Penobscot is one, and then the Kennebec, Androscoggin, Mary Meeting Bay Shrew is the other. So the Down East Shrew starts at the, essentially at the Union River and goes up to the, um, the Denny's. So that would be the Machias, East Machias, um, Denny's, Pleasant, Narraguegas, and Union. And then some of the smaller rivers and streams in between are also designated critical habitat. So there's a designation of both their habitat, which includes their forage, the food, and, and the physical habitat. 
You touched a little bit on the fact that there are landlocked salmon and then there's the Atlantic salmon that is not landlocked. Can you talk a little bit about how it is that that happened and why that is? It really goes back to the period of glaciation when the fish were isolated physically from the sea. They managed to adapt and fulfill their reproductive life cycle in a lake or pond in the associated streams. And they, they then began to speciate, which is you know, separate uh, genetically and isolate themselves reproductively. So they just di diverged in that, during that period. And we've seen the same thing with smelt, for instance. Sea run smelt, landlocked smelt. And there are sea run alewives and there are landlocked alewives. And so it's not unique just to salmon that this, that this occurs. That was Dwayne Shaw, the executive director of the Downey Salmon Federation, talking about Atlantic salmon. You're listening to Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle, from Maine Sea Grant on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM and streaming online at weru.org. Our show today, which was pre-recorded, meaning we aren't taking any calls today, is about sea-run brook trout and Atlantic salmon, species that are emblematic of habitats that are still remarkably wild and untouched, like you can find in places along the Maine coast and especially down east. In addition to Dwayne Shaw from Downey Salmon Federation, we've also been talking with Rob Packey, president of the Down East chapter of Trout Unlimited, and Jeff Reardon, who's the Trout Unlimited Maine Brook Trout Project Coordinator. And we're about to hear from Joe Robbins, a founding member of Downey Salmon Federation, who started fishing for salmon in 1959, long before the species was listed as endangered and back in the iconic days of salmon fishing down east. Here is Joe Robbins. Well, I grew up in Machias. My stepfather was oh, a master salmon angler, so I had a good instructor. And... All the best fishermen in the area uh, used to come to our house. So all these uh, fishermen that I met and got to grow up with taught me a lot about fishing, where to go, when to go, what to use. And you know how the COVID-19 is a disease? Well, salmon fishing is a wicked, wicked disease. <laughs> Just ask my wife. And we had four or five different rivers that we could go to. Each river had a what we call the best pool. The, the Narragansett had the cable pool. The East Machias had the mill pool. The Denny's had the the uh, Charlie's Rips, and a lot of fishermen gathered at these places. And there were so many fishermen that they rotated and took turns coming down through the pool. And if you uh, decided to not play by the rules, you went swimming. The, uh, the competition was fierce. There were plenty of pools on every river that you could go to besides these popular pools. And like in East Machias, down below the mill pool, there were probably seven or eight nice little pocket pools and I called them the lower regions, uh, and that's where I fished, because that's where I'm going when I'm dead, the lower regions. <laughs> but uh, the gear, uh, like Rob said, is fly rod and flies. 
uh, in my golden years, I've switched to a spay rod, which is two-handed rod, about 15 feet long, and it helps me because of my shoulders. But the, the, the competition and secrecy was just almost unheard of. Uh, if you told everything you knew, people would go to your fishing spot and catch the fish that you wanted to catch. It was just competition, competition, competition. There were people that fished for 10, 15 years and never caught a fish. That's how hard it was, but it was a lot of fun. Can you, um, you know, you, you hear these stories about fishing for salmon on these down east rivers. It's so hard to imagine today, right? Um, can you sort of paint a picture what it was like on the water? Did you, were other anglers right there next to you? Were you spaced? Um, how did, how did that, what did it look like out there? Well, like in the popular pools, there would be a line of fishermen working their way down the river. They'd take a cast, maybe two or three casts, and then they'd walk three or four steps down the river. And like on the cable pool in uh, Cherryfield, there was a rack to put your rod in. So it told you where your turn was. And if you drove up to the pool and said, well, there's 15 rods in the rack, I'm not going to be able to fish for three hours, uh, you'd go somewhere else. But there were large peanut galleries at these uh, popular pools too. They like to watch the, the salmon get caught uh, or not caught. It was entertaining. Yeah, it sounds so different than what it is today. I think you said you started in 59, 60, somewhere around there. Can you walk us through sort of what changes you saw like over the decades until the listing on the Endangered Species Act? Well, the limits changed. When I started, it was from April 1st to October 15th. You could catch two a day, every day. That uh, somewhere along the line, that switched to, to one a day. Then it switched to 10 a year, and you had to register them. Then it went to a five a year, then it went to one a year. Then it went to no kill, then it went to no fishing. That was a progression of from like 1965 to 1990. And uh, we have no fishing now, you can't fish for them. And as far as landlocked salmon, that is still open for fishing and that is a big fishery for a lot of people, correct? Yeah, uh, Grand Lake Streams, Everybody goes there for landlocks. And there's landlocks in the East Machias River and all the lakes. Uh, it's very popular. Most of the fishing for it's from boats, though, trolling around the lakes. But uh, people like Rob, if, if we could still catch salmon, I can guarantee you he wouldn't be fishing just the island. He'd be <laughs> coming down east. It's funny you mention that because when the time when I was starting to fish was in the mid-70s. And uh, I didn't have a lot of money going from that into the late 1980s. So I only had one rod. And I had friends that always told me, if you start fishing for Atlantic salmon, you're going to be hooked. You'll never fish for anything else. 
and just the lack of, you know, lack of money and things to have additional equipment and to travel that much, I just stuck to brook trout. And so I actually have never fished for Atlantic salmon. I do fish in the fall for landlocked salmon on some of the ponds from a canoe by casting streamers, but I never have fished for Atlantic salmon and that was why. And uh, Jeff and Dwayne, um, I know you guys are hard at work for fish conservation, but I have a feeling you both fish too. Let's hear a little bit of your fishing stories. Let's start with Jeff. So I'm, 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 I'm maybe like Rob, except that I'm, my focus on brook trout was largely geographic. I grew up in Southern Maine and there were brook trout close to home and uh, to go salmon fishing, I would have had to go to at least the Penobscot um, or, or else down east. And those were a long way from home, and I couldn't get my dad to drive that far. But we had brook trout streams close to the house, so I started doing that. Used to landlock salmon fish a lot on Sebago Lake, where uh, one of my dad's Army buddies had a camp back when Sebago Lake still had camps on it, not million-dollar homes. And um, fished landlocks a lot in the Crooked River, which is the tributary that the uh, the uh, salmon run out of Sebago Lake into. And uh, then when I came back to Maine in the mid-90s, the status of salmon was so poor, at that point we were just a few years before the endangered listing, um, that I frankly didn't feel good about sticking a hook in one. So I probably would have started salmon fishing, but just uh, the opportunities were pretty limited by the mid-1990s when I came back to the state. Interesting. How about you, Dwayne? Well, I, I grew up fishing and hunting and that's pretty much all I ever wanted to do. <laughs> and, uh, my mother's from New Brunswick so we spent a fair amount of time in New Brunswick and and she grew up on the St. John River and I grew up listening to the stories of the destruction of the St. John when the Mactaquac Dam was built in the 60s um, and it destroyed what was a river as at least as good as the Miramichi. So and of course that drains out of Maine as well as New Brunswick. So that, that destroyed the fishery in Maine as well. <clears throat> so I, I was able to, you know, I was very fortunate to start salmon fishing when I was in my teens up there. I never really had like Rob the opportunity to do a lot of it. But when I came to Machias to study as a biologist at UMaine Machias, at, in those days, in the early eighties, you could walk down the hill to the falls in Machias and it wasn't uncommon to see salmon jumping up over the falls. And I, I have one story that, that Joe can attest to since it was a bet, actually. I lost to Joe back in 1984. <laughs> and my, my first job coming out of UMaine Machias was with the Atlantic Salmon Commission. I was tending the trap on the dam on the Pleasant River that was built, which was a major problem for that river. And I tend the trap every morning, and I, I'm supposed to tend it twice a day, see how many salmon are coming up through this fishway that really didn't work. And Joe said, well, you're not going to see one until June 11th. And I said, oh, really? Okay, well, he said, you want to bet? You want to bet? And I said, okay, sure, a six-pack of beer. And uh, I lost. <laughs> First salmon showed up June 11th. So, you know, a lot of the anglers, and I, and I was fortunate to meet a bunch of them as well and now work for the organization that they created but um, they knew a lot about the rivers and what to expect when and what the issues were and that information is extremely valuable so the connection to the community is something that our organization has maintained as a feedback in terms of information in various directions 
Yeah, that, that's something that leads me to, to something I wanted to talk with all of you about and just hear your perspectives on because it sounds like all of you grew up fishing and all of you are now involved in the conservation of fish. And I know that also one hears that there is a concern with fishing that maybe too many fish are coming out of the streams. How does fishing contribute to the conservation of the species that we're fishing? Does anyone have any thoughts on that? What I would say is, is people will protect what they know and care about. And uh, absent fishing because of where fish live, it's very hard to get people to know and care about them uh, because they never see them. I mean, you can have literally a, a river with thousands of fish in it and nobody knows because they don't see what's below the water surface unless they uh, either fish in it or snorkel in it. And, and not many people are snorkeling in small streams in Maine. Season's pretty short for that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, it, it, it's really uh, conservation is about people being engaged with what they're conserving. Um, and angling has always been the, the entree for, for almost all the fish conservationists I know. You know, I, this is Rob. I also think it's interesting. If you look at some of the great writers about conservation, like um, somebody would say, for instance, Aldo Leopold, all that come to mind um, were also avid fishermen um, and started as in their youth um, fishing and then went into conservation work. Um, and a lot of them became writers and wrote some very, very eloquent writing about um, both the fishing and also about the natural history of, of the fish and the habitat, which I find interesting. Yeah. Dwayne or Joe, anything to add to that? Yeah, being uh, a member of TU. Which is really Trap helps, Limited. Really helps because uh, they do a lot of habitat work that no one ever sees unless you're a fisherman. But uh, I'd like to say one more thing. Uh, it's a quote from Samuel Clemens. Why walk five miles to fish when you can be guaranteed to be just as unsuccessful near home? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's a good one. How about you, Dwayne? The, uh, the being a fisherman transition to being also someone dedicated to conservation. Yeah, it's, you know, that was absolutely what happened to me. And um, I think, you know, people wake up over time to the realities, hopefully, of, of what fish can afford to be really taken home or, or killed. And as Rob said, he's not, he's not, um, eating a lot of brook trout anymore. And, you know, I grew up eating brook trout. I don't eat a lot of them anymore, but that's not to say that we shouldn't think about fish as food either. So there's, you know, a joke among the native Americans that why would you catch and release fish? We don't, we don't, we've always been taught not to play with our food. So, um, it's, I think there's a dichotomy again in terms of the fish that we believe are possible to recover may be able to be recovered to a point that in, in fact we can eat them in, in large numbers. And there's a narrative, common narrative going around these days that you know wild fish are gone forever, we need aquaculture. Well, there's 
that's very disputable. And the recovery of our fish is something that could become enormously bountiful again. Alewives are an example. Um, they were they were once canning alewives, and Joe probably saw the alewives in this you know, smoked alewives that a lot of people ate. But if you don't recover them in numbers, then you really can't afford to be taking them out of the population. So there's, that's where management comes in and, and really good assessment of what, what are these populations truly like? So our smelt are an example of that right now, the sea run smelt. Um, we, DSF holds a smelt fry every year and we get that question every year. Well, can you really, can, should we really be eating these fish? And we've looked at the populations very closely and we've, we've seen, in fact, not only are they doing well, but they're recovering because of the conservation work. So it's, you know, there's a big continuum across catch and release, playing with your food, quote unquote, to, um, you know, let's go out and have massive trawlers uh, harvesting some fish. And I'll go one, just one step further, specific to Atlantic salmon, the Greenlanders who fish for Atlantic salmon are indigenous people. They've said, you, you folks down, down country, you produce the babies. Our, our waters produce the adults. You're not doing a very good job of producing many babies, but you're pointing your finger at us for harvesting a few adults. So, you know, we're all woke, we're all connected around this question of, of impact. So, you know, that's a, a big overlying question around why, why do we want to recover these fish to begin with? I, I, if I could just add a little bit to that, uh, I think in, in talking about brook trout in general and, and Atlantic salmon, we're really talking about, at least in Maine, two ends of the conservation spectrum. Uh, on the brook trout front, brook trout is still a species that's common. It's not what it was 300 years ago, um, but you know you can still catch brook trout. Almost every kid in Maine can ride his, his or her bike to some place they can catch a brook trout. And it's about keeping a common species common and in people's backyards. And that's really where a lot of, a lot of the conservation work I'm doing these days is, is focused. With Atlantic salmon, we have them have had them right at the edge of extinction for you know decades if not centuries uh and we're really talking about you know trying to keep a species from going extinct that's been at the brink for a long time and with some of the other native fish in the state we're at various points in between those two continua is it says something about maine that we're really the only place left in the east where brook trout is still a common species that is you know they're they're considered exceptional even in New Hampshire, certainly in Massachusetts and Connecticut and New York State. And we're the only place that has any of our Atlantic salmon left. And uh, that's because Maine's, Maine's a special place. And um, one way of measuring how good a job we do of keeping it that way is whether we're able to keep brook trout common and keep Atlantic salmon from going extinct. Yeah, listening to you guys, what I'm really hearing is the degree to which uh, Maine in general, but also the Downeast region is just so important to these particular species that, that need wild areas um, and that we actually have some of that wild area left in our region. Am I, am I getting that right? Joe, what do you think? Yeah, we, uh, 
Downey Sound Federation has a uh, land trust as well. So we're conserving miles and miles of river frontage down east. You can keep keep the wrong industry away from it, the wrong woodcutting practices away from it, uh, development away from it, improve culverts, things like this. Yeah, if I could add something, I was gonna, just going to say as far as the habitat goes, when we, we tend to talk when we talk about conserving species about just the species, we tend to talk about brook trout or about salmon or any other species, but you really can't uh, conserve um, any species without conserving the habitat that they need to live. And so the two are so intertwined, they're completely intertwined, that you really need to focus a lot on habitat protection and conservation in order to conserve and protect the species that you're, in this case, we're talking about salmon and brook trout, in order to protect those species and their survival. If you're just tuning in, that was Rob Packey, the president of the Downey's chapter of Trout Unlimited. On today's Coastal Conversations with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, we're talking about the conservation of sea-run brook trout and Atlantic salmon. Jeff Reardon from Trout Unlimited explained a few minutes ago how brook trout and Atlantic salmon represent opposite ends of the conservation spectrum, with brook trout still being fairly common in many mainstreams, while Atlantic salmon has been listed as an endangered species for nearly 20 years. Also with us today is Dwayne Shaw, the executive director of Downey Salmon Federation, and Joe Robbins, a founding board member of the Federation and angler who started fishing for salmon in 1959, long before they were listed as endangered. So in the final segment of today's Coastal Conversations, we explore existing efforts to conserve these fish, as well as the critical habitats on which they rely for spawning, feeding, migration, and survival. A quick note before we get started again, I wanted just to remind listeners that today's show was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls at this time. Here's Dwayne Shaw talking about types of habitats that need conservation. There's the wilderness habitat, the you know undeveloped riparian buffers, we call them. This is where the you know, trees hanging over the stream and so on, providing shade, helping keep it cool and insect life and all of that that's associated with that and then there's the developed habitat that also needs attention and that would be for instance like the culverts roads that perhaps weren't built properly but also dams and downey salmon federation and other conservation groups have begun starting to look at buying some of these dams and removing them or building proper fish passage and in some cases, these structures have been there for well over 100 years without adequate passage. So the habitat can be completely um, constrained by a dam that's down below. So you might have beautiful habitat up above, but it, the fish simply can't access it because they're migratory. So we've, we've gone to the extreme of actually purchasing dams, and, and we own one now that's 200 years old in the town of Whiting on the Orange River, which is a designated critical habitat for endangered Atlantic salmon. So we've had to step up to address these old legacy issues. And in that case, we ended up having to buy the house that came with it and 
and so on. And uh, we're in it for the long haul. And this is it, it. These are things that just have to be addressed. Yeah, and, and, and those issues span from, you know, low, re relatively local projects um, to, you know, at, at the big scale. We really want to get Atlantic salmon back. We need them in the big rivers in the state. We need them back in the Kennebec and the Androscoggin and the Penobscot and the St. John. And that means dealing with, with the big dams. Um, we've started that some. We've taken out a couple dams in the Kennebec watershed and, and uh, two in the Penobscot watershed. Uh, and that's led to some success with restoration um, with other species. Uh, but we've got some more dams to go to really uh, reconnect salmon with their, with their habitat. Just the, the sheer number of dams, even with fishways, is an impediment to survival because it those fish take a beating on the way upstream and then the juveniles take a beating on the way back down. And you really can't survive much beyond a dam or two, even with the best fishways in the world. Um, Dwayne might want to talk a little bit about the Union River too. I mean, that, that's a beautiful system with two dams right in Ellsworth and, and, and no fishways that I'd love to see fish back up into. Yeah, it's something we phrase broken rivers and broken fish. So we're talking about the broken rivers right now. And in a moment, I want to say something about the, quote, broken fish. <clears throat> and that the Union River is a big system. It's 500-square-mile watershed, the size of the Machias watershed. And right at the head of tide is a dam that was the tallest power dam in New England when it was built in 1907. 67 feet tall, no fishway in it when it was built. And it is up for relicensing. It's a FERC-licensed dam. And... Um, the Down East TU, DSF, and many other groups are looking at um, how do we, under this license, require, encourage the, that there be proper fish passage put in there such that we could, you know, fix the river. But then you've got the big hurdle of what I say, fixing the fish, since that the population for the Union went extinct many, many years ago. Now we have to bring salmon in there. They won't recolonize on their own. So the hatchery and the um, uh, live gene banking program that's uh, underway at the federal system needs to be fixed such that it operates at the scale that it needs to operate. We've got 6% uh, of the habitat in the state currently that's accessible because we've taken a dam out or put fish passage in or something. Only 6% is actually occupied by juvenile fish. So we have a, very, a big constraint on our recovery because the hatcheries are so small and because the methods of hatcheries have been really not particularly successful. So this is one big wheel on the bicycle. So the habitat's one, but this hatchery piece is one that we're, we're also addressing. So. There, we've got it. We've had an experiment now for nine years, and the results show that that we can produce probably, well, as much as thirty times the success as the methods that have been used for decades. So, if for instance you had thirty times what Jeff just reported on the um, Penobscot, thirty thousand salmon instead of a thousand, I would call that croaching upon success. And we have the means to do that now. And we're doing that on the East Machias. And now we're looking at the Machias and Naraguegas starting as early as next year. 
So this fixing the fish piece, which is a, one of the elements of a proper hatchery, such that those fish actually survive and are of proper you know, genetic origins. So, so Dwayne, the, um, the, what I'm hearing you say is that the, the, the way that the, the traditional hatcheries have been run for a long time um, maybe aren't producing enough fish to survival in the rivers. And so we need to be producing more fish that reach sort of that survive. And that you guys have been at the Downey Salmon Federation, you've been experimenting with different ways to raise fish. And my understanding from the little I know about your hatcheries is that you're trying to really mimic the natural environment of a of a salmon stream. Can you talk a little bit about how how you guys are going about um, the effort to to grow salmon? Yeah, right. So that's that's exactly right. It's it's both a numbers game and a quality. The quality of the fish that are leaving to be stocked is one thing, and then the numbers that you you have available to do this is clearly important since we have all these rivers wide open and no fish to put in them, no young salmon. So we're, we call it rewilding the hatchery. So we're, we're using more naturalized methods. So the tank isn't bright blue, it's dark, it's black. The water velocity is very fast with unfiltered water coming out of the river system. Um, so it's as close to just a loop of the river coming through the tanks and back to the river again. And we hold the fish in there since the, the number of eggs available for any given river is very limited coming out of the live gene bank at Craig Brook. We wanna maximize those, the survival of those eggs coming up to uh, salmon that we can stock. So this method has been tested, like I said, now for nine years and we're seeing really fantastic results. And to the extent now that the full scientific community is bought, buying into this, in fact, tomorrow at this time, I'll be on a call with US Fish and Wildlife Service, NOAA Fisheries, and Maine DMR um, to address the expansion of this program. So we're on to something. Um, it's, it's based upon a model that worked very well on the, in England on the Tyne River where they are fishing a river that was deemed dead um, in the 60s. And, and part of the reason for the recovery there is they cleaned up the river and they did a, a stocking program that is uh, what, we're, what I'm describing. Yeah, uh, thanks for that explanation, Duane. Um, what are ways that listeners who either already are fishing or wanna get into fishing how would you recommend that fishermen and women be able to get involved in contributing to some of the conservation efforts that you're doing? Well, from the perspective of, of someone from Trout Unlimited, um, one of the things that's happening now is a project called Salter Survey. There are a lot of streams on the coast that we don't know if there are sea run trout in them or not. Uh, some of them we don't even know whether there are brook trout in them or not. So we have this program going between Maine Audubon and Trout Unlimited um, to survey, for anglers to survey these streams and just try to see um, what is in them for brook trout and specifically for sea run brook trout. And one of the things that I'm personally going to be doing and trying to get some members from our local chapter to do is fish uh, the coastal streams in the Blue Hill Peninsula is specifically because that's an area that hasn't really been checked that well, from my understanding. But there are a lot of streams um, that are down east from here that also haven't been checked. 
Um, so that's that's something that's really nice to do. It's a good project that's going on. Um, you can access it through the website, through Trout Unlimited or Bain Audubon. And um, Jeff is the uh, contact person, I believe, for that. And maybe he would want to speak a little bit more about that project. Yeah, the only thing I'd add is we got Maine, Maine's got 2,000 plus miles of coastline, and most of the streams we're talking about are uh, literally tiny little trickles, you know, first order, second order streams, things you can hop across. Um, in a state uh, as big as Maine, those don't get a lot of attention from the state's fisheries biology sewer. You know, might have two people managing an area that's got four or five counties to, to cover. Um, and so local eyes uh, and local knowledge go a long way. Uh, we've been pretty successful at identifying streams that uh, in some cases, you know, last time somebody looked at, a scientist looked at it was 25 or 30 years ago and they found no brook trout and anglers go down and find brook trout that are relatively abundant and relatively abundant right down into tidewater. Um, and we're already seeing a couple of examples where that's translating directly into conservation action. And you know, TU's model is we've got these local chapters. Uh, people often know more about their backyard than anybody else does. Uh, and if we can connect their, their knowledge with um, the agency databases um, and uh, help from folks like me and Dwayne to raise some money for projects to deal with culverts, dams, conservation of high quality habitat, it's really about you know connecting people to the fish in their backyards. And uh, if there's a model for doing that without anglers, I don't know what it is. Uh, but uh, groups like TU, Downey Salmon Federation, um, uh, you know that that's kind of our our niche, and uh, it's one that's critical if we're going to keep these fish around. What's so uh, so cool about what you guys are saying to me is um, it just reminds me the degree to which people who spend a lot of time fishing really become incredible ecologists related to those fish and those habitats that those fish live in um, and the amount of knowledge that accumulates in someone's head and in their hands um, as they're fishing over the years and decades that's just a lot of accumulated knowledge over time um, and so it sounds like harnessing that knowledge is a is a really useful useful thing for helping protect some of these species we uh Last year, we did a fly fishing class for people that didn't, didn't know how to uh, fly fish, Downey Salmon Federation. And the Pleasant River Fishing Game does a lot for uh, fishing for kids. And a lot of the towns down here, not a lot of them, but few of them have uh, sections of streams and ponds set aside just for kids. And the more towns that could do that would really help. That's a, that's a, a, a nice theme to, to wind down on. Um, I was just gonna ask you guys um, for sort of your prognosis of the future for brook trout and Atlantic salmon. Um, Rob, do you wanna go first? Well, I, I have to say, and, and you know me pretty well, I, I kind of have a lot of um, perhaps some worry about these species, certainly with the Atlantic salmon, with their precarious situation they're in, in now, but also with the brook trout, because of the things that are happening with the climate, we're seeing increases in water temperature in the Gulf of Maine and also in a lot of the brooks and streams and rivers. Um, so I, I have some concerns about, about uh, environmental issues that are going to affect brook trout. They're a pretty sensitive species down the road. I know it's, 
maybe a little pessimistic, but it's something I think about a lot. Yeah. Well, what you can do as a non-fisherman or someone that wants to get in, into this is join the Trout Unlimited or the DSF, Downey Salmon Federation, and get involved. We have a lot of fun. That was Joe Robbins, a lifelong angler who started fishing for Atlantic salmon in 1959 and later helped found the Down East Salmon Federation. You've been listening to Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at weru.org. We've come to the end of our hour today, and it feels pretty fitting to wrap up with Joe's invitation for folks to get involved. Earlier in the program, each of our guests shared that their passion for fish and fish conservation started when they were kids, when someone handed them a fishing pole and took them fishing. Today, all four of our guests are ardent fish conservationists, helping protect habitats and watersheds up and down the main coast, and especially down east, where some of our streams still run pretty wild. Our guests today were Rob Packey, president of the Down East chapter of Trout Unlimited, Jeff Reardon, Trout Unlimited's main brook trout project coordinator, Dwayne Shaw, executive director of Downey Salmon Federation, and Joe Robbins, founding board member of Downey Salmon Federation and lifelong angler. Thanks so much to all four of them, and also to Tammy Packey, secretary of Downey's chapter of Trout Unlimited, for helping get today's show organized. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. And we also encourage you to listen to our sister program, Talk of the Towns, with host Ron Beard from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend.